0: hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the Book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other conversations podcasts where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word.
1: other, I am reminded today of what Jesus said and prayed in John 17 when he said um, he prayed that we would be one with him as he is one with the Father. And at that time, as you know, Jesus was not physically with his Father, yet he was one with him. Um, And so uh, during this time uh, of challenge, of difficulty in our nation, our world, um, just wanted to encourage and remind you guys first off that um, even though we're not together and can't be together physically, um, we are more one and more together um, with Jesus and because of what he's done for us than otherwise possible. He's closer now um, than he's ever been, I think, in, in some of our lives in some ways. So um, today, I'm, I'm glad to be with you in that sense. Um, we're going to pray and jump right into our passage today. Uh, Father, thank you so much. Uh, for your promise, for your word, and uh, I just want to, today as we remember what you did leading up to your crucifixion and the resurrection um, on Palm Sunday, we just want to stop and say thank you. Lord, without what you did, we would not be who we are, and we would have no hope, we would have no future but you have given us that and you have come to us, reach down. And I thank you, God, that today you are with us. You are with each of us. Even though we're not physically with each other, you are with us. And I pray that you would remind us all of that. I pray as we look at your word, it would be an opportunity to meet with you, our friend, our creator, our father, We just want to say we love you and appreciate you so much. Amen. I'm going to read a story to you from 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 17. It says, When Ahab, which was the king of Israel at the time, saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, and 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Ashtoreth who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But, the Baal's, uh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal, from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or off thinking, doing something, busy, or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's in the bathroom. (laughs) I love this guy. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But, verse 29, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Elijah openly challenged the demonic god Baal, to his face. He put him he pitted him up against the one true God, the creator of the universe. And in fact, Elijah as you see in this passage put all his chips in on in on God. He made sure that there was no possible way that any man could actually start a fire without God showing up. He made sure of that. So all the yelling and misguided rituals led to nothing more than senseless pain and self-destruction by these people, by these false prophets. These frauds tried with all their might to hold on to their followers, which were God's people, by the way, who they had led astray, the Israelites, by trying to prove that their cheap knockoff God, little g, by the way, was real and powerful, but no such luck. In Psalm 62, 11, it says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Something similar to the events that I just read from the story of Elijah here happened in the story that we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 19. So turn with you, follow, turn with you if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 19. We're actually going to start in verse uh, 21 of Acts chapter 19. Acts 19:21 says this. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Paul decided to stay here in, in Ephesus, um, even though he was going to go somewhere else later. After that time, there arose no little disturbance uh, concerning the way. The way was a terminology used for early Christians. So they were, uh, no little disturbance is a a nice way to say, they were stirred up, they were um, angry. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, which is a false god, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So this gentleman made this city tons of money by peddling this false god, this false religion. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may be come, in, come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So, this guy, Demetrius, he gathers together and convinces these like minded business owners here in Ephesus. Um, to rally against the way, these Christians. We kind of jumped into the middle of the story on purpose because I want to ask the question, why in the world would this man be so adamantly uh, angry and violent against the Christians at this time? What is it that the Christians did to cause this? Um, Because the Christians clearly had done something that had threatened to topple these idols that were acceptable in this culture so how did the local business owners react to Demetrius's speech did he win them over Um, These next verses are going to uh, make that clear so continue reading verse 28 when they the people these like-minded business people heard um, this they were enraged And they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. It was that bad. This was such a violent riot that even the disciples would not let Paul go in for fear of his life. And even some of... Um, the I don't know how to say that, verse 31, who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had even come together. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward and Alexander motioning with his hand wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, this stirred them up all the more. It says, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So, this rally that Demetrius had instigated escalated into a full blown, mindless riot. It was so violent, in fact, like I mentioned, that that Paul was urged not even to go into the group. And this frothing crowd was so hopped up with anger and confusion that they chanted for two hours. And I have a question. Um, Something might, this might occur to you as well. Uh, If these idols had so much magnificence that all of Asia, which I'm guessing may have been a little bit of an exaggeration, If all of Asia and the world worshipped them, then why did the people get so worried and worked up? If Artemis was a true God, then this true God could defend herself, right? Um, If she was so amazing, then what was there to be worried about? Could it be that deep down, these people knew that Artemis was a cheap imitation of the one true God? And was it was inevitable that that God would crumble just like the rest? Psalm 144 verse 4 says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Knowing we can't hold on to anything any more than we can hold on to the wind often speaks or, or, or rather speaks to to what's in our heart and it sparks a reaction of panic sometimes trying to control what's out of our control and we know it but we do it anyway because we're trying to grasp something that we know we can't hold on to and it, and it leads to a frenzy to a panic there's a lot of that happening right now in the world because what was previously seen as reliable as solid, as steady, as enduring, is now being exposed for what it is, unreliable and inevitably going to crumble. It's telling how us humans sometimes react when anything you refuse to let go of is threatened. Anything that is less than God, that is, which is everything. Everything is less than God. Everyone is less than God as it pertains to his value. Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, speaking of Jesus. So Jesus is the one true God. And these people are, are... Living out what Psalm chapter 2 speaks of. They're raging. They're rioting. They're upset. They're angry. They're frustrated. They don't want to lose what has given them money, what has given them security, what they have their whole lives wrapped up in. And so they are in a frantic frenzy. And I can't help but wonder when my own reaction is similar sometimes or when your reaction is similar sometimes, if you can relate. I wonder why. And I think it's because, again, we we know that what we might be holding too tightly onto is something that we ought not hold on to because we know we can't, but we forget. And so something had happened. The Christians, the Christians had done something that had caused... This panic. The Christians had done something that had caused this highly motivational, convincing speech that led to ultimately violence, borderline violence. They, they almost hurt some people. But as we um, will see, uh, this ultimately ended in, in nothing. Um, it fizzled out. In verse 35 of Acts 19, it says, "And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is um, know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash." This guy understood, seeing then that these things cannot be... Oh, I already read that, (laughs) verse 37, sorry. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are procouncils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause, no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. No cause that we can give to justify this commotion. This reminds me of what happened when Jesus was standing before the Jewish religious leaders, before Pilate. Mm -hmm. Um, and they chanted, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" And Pilate was, um, like this gentleman here, probably an unbeliever. Uh, Pilate was an unbeliever, but but this man probably was too. And yet he understood. These people had done nothing. Jesus had done nothing. This makes no sense. It's illogical. There's there's no reason why this riot should be should be happening. So we do know, based on this, that the Christians um, hadn't really done anything wrong, but they did something what did they do that caused or elicited such hateful aggression perhaps these believers started a riot of their own that led to this this speech or maybe they successfully lobbied for and um, for an end to this idol worship this industry perhaps and maybe more likely um, maybe they organized a grassroots boycott of the local um, Artemis uh, Demetrius and his, and his other business, uh, uh, business people in the area. Those can all be effective techniques to, to come against things we disagree with, and, and Christians do that, and they can definitely be effective. Let's find out what these troublesome Christians <laughs> did to cause such big problems. Go back to verse 11 of chapter 19. We're going to read there through verse 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who the heck are you? (laughs) I added that part in. Uh, Who are you? We don't recognize you. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them. One man leaped on seven and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks in fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers, came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, tied to Artemis, of course, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which is the equivalent of one to five million dollars, modern day. So, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then, of course, right after that is, is the riot that we read about, okay? Demetrius' speech and then the riot. So, these, these, the Christians, they were, they were coming. Uh, we see that um, actually in verse uh, seven, um, verse 18. It says, many of those who are now believers came... Uh, that can also be translated um, "coming" or "kept coming" in the in the King James version. So this was a continual thing that, that these believers continued to come, and they were confessing or agreeing with God that what they were doing and what they were living in was wrong. Not only did they agree and confess that what they were doing was wrong, and God was was correct in in um, in His righteous ways, but it says they were also divulging. Their practices. Now, this is interesting because divulging literally means to announce. So they were confessing, but they were just making it very clear. They had no shame in, in, in admitting and saying, "We have done wrong. We are, we are um, coming. We are uh, not agreeing with the ways that we previously lived in." the acceptable practices of idol worship in this town at this time, they said, we no longer wanna be associated with that. These were Christians who were doing this. Um, and it's interesting because we, we learn that, um, and David Guzak says this in his commentary, it is significant that these practitioners of magic came confessing and telling their deeds. It was thought that the power of these magic spells was in their secrecy which was renounced in the telling. So essentially what these believers were doing by announcing that what they were doing was wrong went well beyond um, anything that might be obvious just by reading the text. Culturally, by doing that, they were literally, um, it was understood that they were breaking the spell uh, to, to reveal the secrets of their sorcery, basically. And so these believers were really taking a step that, that um, cost them. And then they ended up burning their books, which are worth, like I said, $1 to $5 million. So it, when you look at the picture of what happened with these believers, um, uh, you know, I have, um, you know, it's, it's common to, to, to hear someone say, I'm sorry, you know what, I, I'm really sorry for what I did. Um, but the way to find out and know if they're really sorry um, is if they actually take action that lines up with their confession. So when someone says, you know what? What I did was wrong. If then following that in their life, there's a change in their actions, in their words, then you know that that confession, that repentance was genuine. And so in looking at this, we see that this was a genuine repentance. Not only was it just at this lip service, it was beyond just lip service. These, these people put it all on the line um, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of following the Lord, Um, Genuine repentance always leads to godly revival. Genuine repentance, especially among believers, always leads to godly revival. So these believers, they weren't picketing, they weren't boycotting, causing riots themselves. It's very interesting. They simply turned to God individually, personally. And, and, and something happened when they did that. God said, you know what? I now have some willing vessels that I can speak through. And we see in verse uh, 20 that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God has chosen to spread his word through his people. And when his people are not surrendered to him... He doesn't have willing vessels to work with. But when we come to God and we say, God, I know what I have done is wrong. And we confess that and we change. He says, that's it. I love that. I have a willing vessel that I can now use to set others free, to bring freedom, to, bring, um, to set the captives free, to bring change in people's lives. When believers turn to the Lord, others see the Lord. But there was a cost, like I pointed out, 50,000 pieces of silver. And one to five million dollars, that's a lot of money. You know, it almost seems crazy, unless we remember that we will willingly trade up for anything we believe to be of greater value. We will trade up anytime, any human being will trade up for something of lesser value, in exchange to get something of greater value. And that is what these believers have done here. That's what these Christians did. That's what they understood. And even though their souls were saved, they were believers, they at this point more fully realized something. Maybe someone had never told them before. They may have been new believers, just early converts, most likely they were. And so, and so as they they were as they saw this this act of God this this display of God's power and his compassion it turned them Um, although I can't relate to the magic arts (laughs) um, I can testify to what Jesus can do um, when someone simply responds to his shepherd's voice um, even if it has a real cost Um, it's been several years now um, my business was continuing to grow at the time um, to the point where we almost couldn't even keep up. We had no growth plan. We had no promotion. We had no marketing, no cold calling. We were not trying to grow our business, but it yet it kept growing, and we were passively accepting what God was, was giving to us, which was a growing business at the time. This was years ago. Um, but it came to the point where I, I, just, I just couldn't keep up. And I felt like Peter when Jesus filled his nets with fish. I was just, I was thankful. But I was so, my time was just, was just filled with trying to keep up with everything. And the Bible says a man can receive nothing unless it be given him from above. So I know that anything that I have, that any of us have at any point in our life, is because God gave it to us. So I, I was thankful. But, but I had this, this moment Um, where I expressed to the Lord that I actually wanted to use more of my time to directly minister to people. Um, And so he said something back to me that I'll never forget. He said, son, if I wanted to use you more in that way, I couldn't because your calendar is too full. It's too locked up. And he was right. And so I said, okay, um, I don't really know what to do with that. Um, so help me make that happen. I don't know what the next step is, Lord, but I know what you've put in my heart, this desire. I'm thankful for what you're giving me, and I could could continue down this path um, of just passively accepting what you're giving me, but I, 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 just, I just want to have more of my time freed up for direct ministry to, to people. And so that actually kicked off a, a, a multi-year process uh, of me choosing to turn down um, one business opportunity, one client after another, um, and, and as I did that, um, I, I got more time, more of my time freed up. Surprise, right? Um, but what also happened is as the income also went down too, because I was giving up, I was giving up business opportunities and, and, and clients. So um, at that time, um, once uh, after a few years, more of my schedule was freed up. I didn't know what was next. But he placed this desire in my heart in a specific leading um, to do something that I had done previously, years before that point. um, To look for retirement homes where the word of God was not being shared, where his love was not being shared, perhaps, as well. Um, And long story short, God... Um, placed me in two separate different uh, retirement homes that I would go and visit every single Sunday. I would go to one and, and share a sermon. And then I would go to the other one uh, directly after that in my car. And I would share the same, the same teaching from the same passage with a different group of, of elderly people. Um, and it was, it was an amazing, amazing time. Um, and, and because I simply said uh, yes uh, and made more space for him, um, he 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 put that into my into my life. Uh, he said, "There's a willing vessel that will share my word with others." So, um, like these people, um, they they made sp- more space for God in their life, basically. Um, and God responds to that. And the joy of walking with Jesus since that point, the joy of serving Him and seeing lives change for Him, I would never trade it for anything. I have not looked back. I will not look back. Um, any, any, any amount of money that I could have made uh, is just garbage compared to, uh, as Paul said, the surpassing value of knowing him. Um, the intimacy that I have experienced with my Lord, um, not that I didn't experience it before, but, but an, an, a next level. Um, the, the amount of, of the instances where I would go and step out in faith every week, and, and be literally some weeks just afraid to go because I, I would have lies rolling through my mind. These people don't want to hear what you have to say. This isn't worth it. The enemy lied to me week after week and I just continued to go just to be faithful one foot in front of the other and then I would show up and I would open my mouth and God's word would come out and people would be changed and he was faithful to be there. And I would not trade that for anything because a life is far more valuable than any amount of money that this world can offer, that any amount, anything that this world has to offer will crumble. And it doesn't matter if, if we give all that we have to save one soul. It is worth it. So, so these people, God begins to do revival in this city um, because Christians turn to Him. It's amazing to me that these Christians did all of this without being told by anyone to turn away from this this cheap knockoff um, idolatry to the Giver of lasting eternal life. No one said you need to do this. No one, no, no preacher pounded the pulpit and said you better get you better get with it. You better turn. And there, and there's a place obviously to confront um, and to exhort with God's word. But these believers, um, it's interesting how they responded. What brought change in their lives Um, is similar to what brought change to the people of God in Elijah's time. So I didn't finish the story of of Elijah. So let's read the rest of it. We're going to jump back to Elijah chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 18, um, verse 30, and we're going to finish the story. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 30 says this. Then Elijah said to all the people, this is the rest of the story as it said, come near to me, all the people of Israel, all the false prophets, everybody, everybody come here. And all the people came near to him and he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. The altar of the Lord had been thrown down. They weren't even worshiping God anymore. They'd forgotten the Lord. They weren't seeking God. They had gone the other way. They were following these false prophets. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two saiths, I think is how you say it, of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut uh, the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. So something that was already impossible, he's making it even more impossible and undoable, or um, yet yeah, impossible to do or, or accomplish, to, to bring fire upon a wet sacrifice, a wet altar. And he said, do it a second time. Let's just make sure this thing is doused, saturated. That this people may know you. Elijah's praying for a miracle of God that these people might know him, that they might see God displayed in this time. And that you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38 Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And what happened? And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook, Kishon, and slaughtered them there. These were people who previously didn't have an answer for Elijah when he when he came to them and wanted them to follow God. So God did something to get their attention. God had confronted Ahab actually earlier in this chapter with God's truth. He had told him what he was doing wrong. It's just, He's like, you're the one who's actually causing the problem, Ahab. Then he performs a miracle. God's people see it and confess him as Lord And they returned to him to fight on his side. So similarly, back to Acts chapter 19. Similarly, Paul had been sharing the word for two and a quarter years. um, Two years and three months. Um, Sam taught on that a couple of weeks ago. um, The beginning part of Acts chapter 19. Um, Specifically, if you want to reference the verses, is verses uh, 8 through 10. Um, so he'd been sharing the word um, in the synagogue and then he went from there because the Jews were hard-hearted and shared in this hall of Tyrannus, as, as it was called. For two years, he shared the word of God. He, 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 um, he reasoned with them um, to the point where all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So to set the stage here, in the context of God's word, having already saturated this region, it was ubiquitous at this point. God does something extraordinary to quote from verse 11 like with Elijah around the year 863 BC about 7 or 917 years earlier than this point something that was normally impossible just like with Elijah also happened on this day in AD 54 in Ephesus in Ephesus and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Okay. Who was doing the miracles? Who was healing these sicknesses and these diseases? God was. God decided to do this. This was his idea through one of his followers, Paul, in this case. Okay, so Paul's snot rags, <laughs> sorry, uh, and his, his aprons. At first reaction, I, I have to say, just honestly seems a little bit odd, just, just a tad. But, I mean, you know, Jesus spit on the ground and used mud to heal someone, you know, someone's blindness. So, um, I guess not that odd. But it, it seems odd to me. So, if it were up to me, this is probably not how I would have, you know, done a miracle. Um, But it wasn't up to me. It was up to God. Um, And we do see some odd things in Scripture, but uh, in terms of miracles. But hey, his ways are not our ways. So uh, who am I to argue with him? But it probably didn't seem that odd to Paul, interestingly enough. Paul was a uh, disciple of Jesus. Uh, A disciple is one who is a follower or an imitator of Jesus, as Paul tells us, wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 1 of his letter to the Ephesians. He said, be imitators of God as dear children. Okay, so Paul is just imitating his God, Jesus, God in the flesh. Um, So he was just in essence mimicking what he saw Jesus do. For example, like in Matthew chapter 14, verse 35, it says, and when the men of that place recognized him, Jesus, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So everyone who touched Jesus' garment in Matthew 14 were made well. So Paul had no doubt heard about this, um, probably maybe from Peter, one of the other disciples. So Paul was probably like, okay, um, here's some of my clothing. Let's, let's get some people healed. And, and God, ultimately was God's idea. Now, of course, this isn't always how God and his followers healed people, of course, in, in scripture. Uh, another example in Matthew chapter 8, um, God, um, God uh, verse 16 of Matthew 8 says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. And healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. It's from Isaiah 53. So Jesus was fulfilling what was foretold by the prophet Isaiah to come and heal people, to set them free from demon oppression. Um, and this is what Paul's doing. Um, but he did it differently in, in each, each instance so it's not not something to fixate on as, as far as like oh he did it with handkerchiefs so that's just how God does things. Um, God does things differently every time um, and, and that's okay it's up to him He's God um, I just wanted to, to point that out so as with any of God's actions um, what's the point like why does why does why did God do this why did he, why does he do anything? Um Well, the point always with any of God's actions is to reveal his character. We are down here, up there. He understands more than we do. And he has broken into this world. When God does something, it is to reveal an aspect of his character and for people to be changed as a result. God doesn't waste his words And God doesn't waste his actions either. His character, specifically in this case, God heals because he loves. God sets captives free because he loves. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14 says, When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. And did what? Healed their sick. Matthew 14, 14. So if you wondered why does God heal people? Why does God give gifts of healing, give gifts of healing? And was... It's because he loves and has compassion on people. Matthew 14, 14 answers that question. And like the Holy Spirit did through Jesus, God here displayed his compassion through Paul for the sake of others. God didn't do a miracle for the sake of Paul. God did a miracle for the sake of the people on the other end of Paul. Paul was just a conduit. Paul was a willing vessel. Paul was all in. Paul was on these missionary journeys, getting beaten, getting stoned, being left for dead, being, being uh, almost killed multiple occasions. He actually was uh, did die at one point and was it was brought back to life. Um, so... Paul was all in, and God said, there's a willing vessel. I can flow through him to display my character to the world. Now contrast that, what he what, and was people in general, with what Satan did to people in this case. Contrast that with what God does for people with what Satan did to people. Verses 13 through 16, we see, I'm not going to read it again, but these um, Jewish exorcists, they took it upon themselves to do, do something that was miraculous. They thought it was a good idea. Note the contrast with what we saw just happen. God decided to do something. These guys... Didn't have God's blessing in this, and they just decided to do it. This was these guys' idea, not God's. It reminds me of what Jesus said to some other Jews in Matthew sixteen four, To the Pharisees and the Sadducees. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. These men were seeking for a sign. God doesn't do miracles. He doesn't heal people so that we can focus on that. He does it so we can see his character, so we can be drawn to him, so people can see his goodness, his compassion. And these these gentlemen, these Jewish exorcists, uh, didn't have that in mind. They had their own vainglory in mind. So how did it pan out for these guys? It didn't matter that they were sons of a Jewish high priest. It didn't even matter that they used Jesus' name. Only God is capable of healing and setting captives free, period. Through whom and and when through whom he chooses. And when he chooses. Because because God was not in this, it didn't happen. If he would have been in it, it would have happened. There would have been a miracle. No human being can perform a miracle. Only God can do that. No one can heal like God does. So even, not only did it not happen what they were wanting to happen, but even worse, it backfired. (laughs) Satan ripped apart his own. These guys were not on God's side, and Satan comes in and rips them apart. Sound familiar to the story of Elijah? Elijah. The false prophets of Baal cutting themselves so severely that they're gushing blood out all over the place. Satan motivated that event 917 years earlier, just like he motivated this event uh, in, in AD 54. On a side note, when you see someone healed, from your prayers or set free from Satan because you prayed for them to, to for that to happen, or someone else prayed for that to happen. It's because God chose to do it through you or through someone around you, through another believer. So rejoice and give God credit for it. Be excited, be happy about that. Don't let what God hasn't yet done or hasn't done in the past to heal or set someone free keep you from rejoicing when He does. Don't focus on what God hasn't done. Focus on what He has said and rejoice in that. Let's not let what, he ha- what, what we think He should do or, or should have done cloud the, the beautiful um, thing that He's doing right in front of us. Let's rejoice in that because, it, again, it can't happen unless He decides that it's going to happen. Don't want to kick against the goats. All right, so as you can see, it's a little bit later now, behind me through the window. Um, We had some technical difficulties with the camera. Sorry about that interruption, but we are back. Uh, So anyway, like I was saying before my technology failed me here, um, (laughs) these people, uh, they went from learning about Jesus for two years um, by Paul, to seeing his power uh, and his love and action. So what they had heard, they had now seen. And the word fear um, is used here to explain their response, basically. And it's actually the same word that's used in Luke chapter 7. Um, and it says in Luke chapter 7, verse 16, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So, for context, This is the story uh, in Luke chapter seven, starting in verse 12, um, where Jesus actually comes to this town and there was a dead man. Um, He had died. He was in the casket. He was in the coffin and his mother, uh, it was her only son is crying. She's weeping. And Jesus is like, don't be sad. And he speaks to that. He says, young man, verse 14, I say to you, arise. And the dead man uh, rose up and, and, uh, began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. So upon seeing this miracle, these people responded in, in fear. It's the same word used here. And, and as a result, God was glorified. It says they glorified God. And the report about him, verse 17, spread through the whole region of Judea. So um, that's the, that. if I could paraphrase uh, the reaction of these people, um, both in Acts and Luke, uh, it's almost as if they were they were saying, wow, we recognize the reality that this God is the real deal. He is real. There is no question now in our mind that he is the God, the real God, and we do not want to be on the wrong side. We saw how Satan mistreated his own, ripped them apart. We saw how God took care of People who weren't even his own. How he loved people by showing compassion and healing them, setting them free from their bondage, their oppression, from Satan. These people saw the difference. These Christians saw the difference between that. And and they they were filled with fear. They said, man, this is God. Um, This is the one true God. So God's nature is such that in compassion, he is the one who restores people. Satan, on the other hand stark contrast, in cruelty, he rips people apart. And that's what he did here with the sons of Sceva. God's compassion shared and shown compels people to come to him. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, both Christians and unbelievers alike. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. This is the same repentance actually that is seen in Acts chapter 5 um, verse 12 says now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico none of the rest of, uh, none of the rest dared uh, join them but the people held them in high esteem and more than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So we see this pattern um, uh, in the book of Acts. After Jesus had gone to heaven, his believers are behaving like he did. Um, They're they're mimicking (laughs) the one that they follow. Makes sense. So in conclusion, Jesus' word we see in this passage coupled with his works. Paul didn't just talk about his love. He showed his love to the people. And that love that's exhibited to us, through us, has the power to turn many people to him during these times, like it did in Elijah's time, like it did in Jesus's time, like it did in Paul's time. It's the same power, the same God with the same amount of compassion, which is endless for those um, who he's made. he has made. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. God shows his love and compassion to all. And we get to be a part of that. That's the exciting thing. In fact, Jesus in John 14 verse 12, you probably know this verse, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, do you believe in him? I believe in him. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. That's what Jesus said. So as we share the good news of Jesus, let us also look for opportunities to show the good news of Jesus, whether that's giving to someone who's in need, who's lost their job. Um, whether that's someone who just needs some prayer because they're downcast, because they're discouraged for whatever reason. Maybe there's there's a lot of people right now that are filled with anxiety and they need encouragement. There's people that are sick that need healing. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. That's what Peter did. That's what Stephen did. That's what Elijah did. And we have the opportunity to do that too because he's given gifts to us, 1 Corinthians 12, and one of those is healing. And the whole point of this, all of this that God does, that he chooses to behave and act this way in this world, is to give people a glimpse into a kingdom that won't crumble, a kingdom that's eternal, to point them to a God that is everlasting and slow to anger and rich in mercy. So the whole point of this is in hopes, as we love people, as we share the good news, that they would would turn to God or return to Him if they've forgotten who He is. Jesus is our only hope right now. What an opportunity for us to go deeper with Him in terms of our intimacy, to get to know Him better, spend time with Him. And when we spend time with Him, we're going to become like Him which is the only way that we're going to be able to affect and infect the world around us that is infected with something else. But God has a different plan. He wants to infect this world with himself through his love. He wants to show people that he has not come to condemn them, that he has come that they might be saved. And we get to display that because we are his body. His physical body is in heaven. He's the head; we're the body. We get to mimic him. We get to imitate him, as Paul told these Ephesians to do when he wrote to them in Ephesians chapter five, verse one: "Be imitators of God, as dear children. We're children of our Father. My son, he loves to imitate me because he's my son, and we get to imitate our Father, who was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ." The harvest was ripe then, and the harvest is ripe now. As Sam reminded us a couple of weeks ago from Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says this And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. God, I thank you for the work that you are doing, the work that you have already done to prepare hearts. There's more people now than there are um, who, who are ready and ripe to hear your good news and to see your good news, to turn to you than there are people to go out and to display you to share your good news, to, to show your love to these people, God, who are many of which are dying without hope. And I pray, Jesus, that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us be disciples and disciples of you, followers of you. You are our perfect example. And we thank you for that. We thank you that because you showed us love, we know how to love too. Mm-hmm. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Hope you have a blessed day. Take care.
0: Well, hey, what's up, Philip? I just want to thank you guys so much for tuning in and joining us uh, this week for our Sunday morning service. Um, Hey, next week, as you guys know, is Easter, uh, and we will be going back to doing a live stream um, on Easter at 10 a.m. And here's the thing about Easter. You know, this is the time where people always invite friends and family, um, and the chances of them coming to church is way higher on Easter than it normally is. So here's how we're going to navigate that this year. Obviously, we can't gather. And obviously you can't invite them probably into your home to watch it with you. But what we can do is we can invite them with the live stream link. So we're going to get the live stream link out to you guys really early this week. Uh, And we're going to just really ask everybody to make a campaign to send that out to your, your friends and neighbors and, and, um, people that you know that you think might tune into it and we're going to preach the gospel next week man the gospel of the resurrection of christ is just life transforming life changing we're going to take a look at 1 corinthians 15 and paul's exposition of the resurrection and all of its implications so please invite people next week Uh, looking forward to being with you guys i wish we could be together in person but we're going to work with the common grace that god has given uh, in this situation love you guys have a great week